Good morning, church. There are actually two scripture readings this morning. The first is Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. While we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great Father, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. The second is found in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17 to 24. So I tell you this, and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do, in the, f- in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. That, however, is not the way of life you have learned. When you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. I want to say thank you so much for having me here this morning. I'm here by invitation of the elders, and they're only inviting me because of your confidence in them to make a good decision to follow the Lord as as he uh, hopefully brings to you someone that he has chosen. And so I'm honored to be here. I've met a number of you already, but I'm looking out and I see that there's so many that I haven't met. And I, I want you to know that I would love to meet everybody here, so we'll be around after the service this morning and then, of course, tonight. And I would love to interact with more of you. Uh, but again, my name, my name is Matt Burleson and I'm from, from Montana. If you have your Bibles, would you open them to Titus chapter 2? To Titus chapter 2. I've been asked to speak this morning on the grace of God and more specifically on how the grace of God plays into our growth and grace and knowledge. In other words, our growth into the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, as Paul said in Ephesians 4. As I think about grace this morning, a story keeps coming back to mind that I'd like to share with you because I think it embodies everything we mean when we speak of grace. Shortly after World War II in the United States, there was a doctor named A.J. Cronin. Cronin had some friends that lived in the suburbs of Connecticut, which northeastern United States. The family was the Adams family, and they had two children. One was named Sammy, and he was very sickly, and they had a daughter as well. And they decided that at some point they would adopt. And so they brought in a young Italian refugee after the war who had lost his family in the war. And the boy's name was Paul Piotro Stanalsi. Quite the mouthful to say. And I probably butchered the Italian on that. So they brought in this boy. And Paul had had a difficult life, as you can imagine, during the, the the Second World War. 
And so when they brought him in, he was extremely difficult. He wouldn't listen to his family. When they told him to do something, it was like Paul was determined to do exactly the opposite. He was constantly in trouble and would not listen to what they said. One day, Paul had the bright idea to go out to a pool to go swimming in the spring one year. And it just so happened that that water was contaminated. I don't know with what. But Paul got very, very sick and they brought him out. And Cronin, Dr. Cronin, came out to tend to this boy. And he recommended to Miss Adams that Paul be taken to the attic where he could be separated from the rest of the family so that they wouldn't get the disease that, that he had gotten from that water. But Sammy and Paul had gotten really, really close in the time that Paul and Paul had lived as part of the family. And so sometime in the night, Sammy snuck out of his bed and he climbed those stairs and he jumped in bed with Paul sleeping next to his brother. And all night long, Paul's breath fell on Sammy. Over the following days, Paul got better and better and Sammy got worse and worse until eventually he died. He died as a result of having contracted this disease from Paul. A year later, Dr. Cronin came back to the family He pulled into the driveway wanting to check on them, to reach out to them, to to see how they were doing after such a year. Traumatic loss of losing a son like that. And when he pulled into the driveway, before his very eyes, there was Mr. Adams standing in the garden. And there to his side, kneeling in the dirt next to him, working the grass, was Paul. And he got out of the car and he slammed the door and he huffed and he puffed us all all the way over to Mr. Adams. And he said, what's that Paul pee up? Whatever his name is, what is he doing here? And Mr. Adams stopped in mid-sentence and said, Doc, you don't have to worry about pronouncing his name anymore. His name is Paul Adams. We've adopted him. Brothers and sisters, that's the grace of God, is it not? We are all sinners. Romans 3.23 says that we have sinned. It says we also will sin and fall short of the glory of God. But God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our account so that we through him might become the righteousness of God. In other words, through his death, we have life. Through his death and through his resurrection, we can become the dearly loved children of God. Forgiven, yes, but also adopted, brought into the family of God, one of God's own dearly loved children. The grace of God has appeared, as was read for us just a moment in Titus chapter 2, 11. But the question is, what exactly do we do with such grace? I mean, it's such a privilege to be God's children, but but how do we respond to it when we have received it? You know, in my experience as a minister in preaching and ministry for the last 11 years, what I've seen is that a lot of people treat grace a lot like we treat junk mail. Do you get junk mail in in Canada? Do you do that? I know that I used to laugh at my parents when they would get the mail because probably 80% of it went directly into the trash. They never opened it. They never read it. They never paid any attention to it. And now I find myself doing the same thing because I go to my post box and when I open it, there in the mail is just a bunch of junk mail that I disregard and I immediately toss. And I've noticed that a bunch of people treat grace the exact same way. My training... Most of it at the initial part of my ministry was at Heritage Christian University. Heritage is in North Alabama. It's formerly International Bible College. And students from all over the world for the last 50 years have come into this place to train in the Bible and to train in ministry. 
And one of the things that made it possible for me to go there was around 2005, 2006, they built this immaculate dorm on the very back corner of the campus. This dorm could house, let's see, probably around 40 people all total. And I was one of those 40 that got to, got to eventually go there. In my time there, I noticed that despite the generosity of, of many donors who had given of their funds through the years to build this building, there were some there that didn't really appreciate what was going on. I won't call the name of one brother, but I remember one time it was during the lectureship when all of the, the alumni and all of the, the donors and everyone was on campus. And there in the breezeway of, of our dorm, between the, the, the rooms, one student had hit a deer on the way back to campus. And he thought he would just hang it up and skin it out right there in the middle of the dorm, right there in the middle of the lectures. Grace didn't make a lot of difference. The generosity of these donors didn't make a lot of difference in how he lived in the dorm. I remember another time this man had hit a possum. Uh, Are you noticing a theme here? (laughs) So he hits a possum on the way back to campus one night after. He was out preaching and hits the possum. And he has this bright idea. He's a Montana boy. He has this bright idea that he wants to tan the possum's hide. Okay? So he skins out the possum and he brings it into our dorm room. And for about three weeks, at least, have have you ever smelled the tanning chemicals that they use to treat furs? You don't want to. But for day and night, for about three weeks, that's all we smelled. You know what? I went back to that dorm about a year after I'd moved out. You know what I smelled? I still smelled that stinking possum, quite literally, because it was still there. Grace did not make a difference. There was another time the same brother was driving his truck. It was an, it was an old truck that, that he had repaired, and he had some talent in that area. And so one night I walk, walked in after I'd been at church serving this night, and I walked in, and there in the middle of our living room is the motor that he had pulled from his vehicle, and he's rebuilding it in the middle of the dorm room. It left a stain in the middle of the floor. They had to come in and change the tile, strip the floor, everything to get it back the way it was before. And I think sometimes that's how we do with grace. God has given so much of himself. He's given so much to us. And yet sometimes it makes very little impact in the way we live in our day-to-day lives. It's just like junk mail. It's just like living in this place by someone else's generosity and doing the things I've just described my friend doing while we were there. But is that the way God wants us to respond to his grace? Is that the way God wants his children, you and me, to respond to his grace. And Paul, of course, as you read the letter to Titus, is going to say absolutely not. When Paul writes to Titus, Titus chapter 2, the first ten verses of that chapter, Paul is speaking to several different age groups, all of whom are represented here this morning. You can self-identify if you like. But Paul speaks to the older men in verses 1 and 2. And he tells them that they're to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, love, and steadfastness. Then he has instructions for older women as well. He has certain characteristics to which he wants them to aspire also. And then he moves to the younger women and he wants the older women to teach the younger women to live a certain way. And eventually he ends with Titus himself and says, Titus, I want you to be an example of these things and and teach the young men. And wraps up with slaves at the very end. Slaves or servants. The modern comparison would be employees. Employees today. People who work for someone else or do someone else's work. 
And so in speaking to these different people, Titus is told by Paul. Paul tells Titus, I want you to live a certain way. And then in chapter 2, verse 11, he says, the reason, the reason is this, for or because the grace of God has appeared. You say, well, what exactly does Paul mean when he says the grace of God has appeared? And if you skip down later in the reading to verse 14, there's a parallel A parallel word. It's the word he gave. He gave himself. And that phrase, he gave himself for us, interprets what Paul means in verse 11 when he says the grace of God has appeared. In other words, when Paul says the grace of God has appeared, he's talking about our Lord's incarnation. When he became human, flesh, just like us, and he walked among us. Paul says that when Jesus did that, when he gave himself, he did it in order to redeem us. Literally to emancipate us. He did it to set us free from the bondage and the tyranny and the slavery of sin. To redeem us. To redeem us from all lawlessness, but also to purify. Your Bible may say consecrate. To purify or sanctify or consecrate. A people who are uniquely his own. A people for his own possession. A people who are his. A peculiar people, the KJV says. The people who are uniquely his, who are zealous for good works. As you read that, I hope what's coming to mind is what Paul intended to come to mind. Because with these words, he wants to make us think of the Exodus. Just as God redeemed Israel from Egypt, he went to Pharaoh and through Moses said, Let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness, that they may worship me. God redeemed his people, yes, but he also Purified them. He separated them from the world so that they could be devoted exclusively to him, so that they could be his special people. As Exodus 19, verse 5, and Deuteronomy chapter 7, Deuteronomy 14, verse 2, and 26, I've got the reference written down, but a number of other places say God wants people who are uniquely his own, people who belong to him exclusively, who define their lives by their commitment to him. When you put all of this together, what Paul is saying is that God wants us to be different because of grace. The same Jesus who appeared, you see, will also appear again. As we wait for the blessed hope, the appearance of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The same Lord who came to do these things is going to appear again. It's kind of like going and placing an order at a takeout window, I think. Jesus showed up to tell us what God expects of us as his dearly loved people. But he's going to show up when the order is ready, when the fullness of time comes again. And he's expecting to find us a certain way. And what will it be like if he gets here and we're not that type of people? What will it be like for us if we're just receiving grace and treating it like junk mail and it's making absolutely no difference in our lives? What will that be like for us? Paul has a very different understanding about grace. Grace is free, but it's not cheap. When God gives grace, God expects something of us. And if you read with me in chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, this is how how Paul puts it. For the grace of God has appeared, Jesus came, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. 
I want to draw your attention to the word, the first word in verse 12. It's the word training. Paul says that Jesus showed up. Grace appeared in order to train us to live a godly life. I want to go back to HCU for just a moment and tell you a little bit more about our time there. One of the biggest reasons that that dorm was able to be built was because of the generosity of a man named Dr. John Kerr. Dr. John Kerr. Uh, Dr. Kerr was a young man who wanted to be a missionary with everything in him. He grew up in southern Kentucky. And for his time in, in school, his, his high school years, he wanted to be, a, doc, uh, he wanted to be a, a missionary so badly. He was planning to devote his entire life to it. But his father recognized something in him that maybe Dr. Kerr didn't recognize in himself. And he said, son, you can either go and be a missionary and do God's work yourself and be limited in what you can accomplish. Or you can devote your life to medicine and with the salary that you would earn in the States, you could support 10 missionaries. And so Dr. Kerr went to medical school. He became a medical doctor and he moved south to Hamilton, Alabama, which is near where I grew up. And for all of his years, he's been a generous supporter of Heritage Christian University. He's been a generous supporter of of mission works across the world and a friend of preachers as well. And if you go to that dorm I talked about earlier, his name is on the plates on the door. It says this room supplied, furnished generously by Dr. John and Sarah Kerr. There was another student, a little bit different than the first student that I mentioned earlier. This student's name was Johnny. Johnny came to Heritage around the year 2004, so a little bit before I was there. But Johnny came to Heritage around 2004, just before the dorms were built, and he was there after they were completed, and I believe he lived in them for a short period of time before he graduated. A little bit about Johnny is that Johnny did not grow up in the church. He didn't know Jesus. He didn't know the forgiveness and the fatherhood of God like we do. But one day when his mother, Grace, went to the doctor in Hamilton, Alabama, God brought Grace and Dr. Kerr together. And Dr. Kerr began sharing the gospel with her. And over time, she became a Christian. And then she was so zealous for what she had learned from Dr. Kerr that she began sharing it with her son, Leland, and eventually with Johnny himself. And in time, Johnny became a Christian and he accepted God's call to be a minister, to to preach. And so Johnny went to Heritage Christian University. In my time of interacting with Johnny near the end of his time at HCU, what I noticed is that Johnny took a different kind of pride in the campus than did this other student. Johnny was quick to pick things up when they fell on the ground. Johnny was quick to care for the campus. He didn't do the things that the other student did because that name on the door, Dr. Kerr, was not just a name to him. He had a special relationship with him. And because he knew the person whose generosity made it possible for him to be there, he conducted himself differently while he was there. And Paul is saying that's exactly how grace is supposed to be for us. If God has been so generous and so kind to us, then it's supposed to make an impact in the day-to-day way that we live our lives. You say, how so? Well, in the first place, Paul says that the grace of God has appeared and it trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. To renounce, or I think the NIV translates that, to say no. 
If we're responding to the grace of God, if we're grateful for what God has done, Paul says there's some things we need to root out, some things we need to say no to in our lives. He says ungodliness is the first of these. Ungodliness is another way of speaking of living a life of utter disregard for God. Utter disregard for God. It's not merely that my life is not like God or God's nature. Ungodliness is more the idea that it's not like God and I really could not care less. It's an attitude that I don't really care what God thinks. I've got my life, what I want, what I feel, what I believe, and I'm going to do it my way. And and who cares what God thinks? That's ungodliness. And Paul says that if we're going to be faithful to the grace of God that has been revealed to us, that way of thinking has to go. And along with it, when we think that way and we live that way, if I have an attitude of utter disregard for God, it's going to show up in other ways. Paul talks about worldly passions. Passions is the Greek word epithumia. Epithumia literally means desire or strong, intense desire. And Paul is saying that if I live my life in an attitude of utter disregard for God, then my passions, my bodily flesh, is going to rule my life. In Romans 6.12, Paul said, Let not sin rule in your flesh to make you obey its passions. Let not sin rule in your flesh to make you obey its passions. You see, sin makes us go out of control. Sin makes us subject to the urges of our fleshly bodies that are not always pleasing to God. Worldly passions, desires that are more shaped by the world around us than the God who lives within us through His Spirit. If we have an attitude of utter disregard for God, it's going to show up in the way we manage or fail to manage ourselves. It will show up in worldly passions. And then if you skip down to verse 14, Jesus gave Himself to redeem us from all lawlessness. If I can't manage myself, then I'm not going to manage my relationship with you either. Jesus said in Matthew 22, 37 through 39, that the greatest command is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. A couple of different times in the letters of Paul, Paul says that love does no wrong to a neighbor, and therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. It's in Romans 13 and Galatians chapter 5. And so when we're talking about living a lawless life, what we're talking about is living a life not only in disregard for God, but a life that's in disregard for my neighbor. I have no regard for God. I have no respect for you. And Paul says that if I'm going to respond faithfully to the grace of God, that root attitude of a disregard for God that shows up in a failure to manage myself and a failure to respect you, all of that has to go. I've got to say no to that kind of living. In other words, I can't be the type of student who would move into the dorm and say, well, I don't really care about all these generous donors that have given so much of their lives and their livelihood to make it possible for me to be here. I've got to let that attitude of disregard go. But Paul goes on to say, I want you to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. In other words, let's start with that last one, godly lives. If ungodliness is the idea that I show no regard for God in the way I live in relation to self and others, then godliness is the idea that I care what God thinks enough to let Him have a say in how I live my daily life. 
That's godliness. Yes, godliness is being like God, but in the sense that the word is used in Titus, the Greek word literally means to care what God thinks. I care what God thinks. Attitude of godliness. I care what God thinks because I know what God has done and what he thinks of me. He thinks of me as his dearly loved child, as Ephesians 5.1 says. And so I'm going to respond out of respect for my father and how I live my life. That's godliness. If I honor God with that attitude, that root attitude, that's also going to show up in other ways too. Paul talks about living self-controlled. Older versions may say living sober. And the sense of that word self-controlled is I am responsible. I'm able to manage myself so that with my life I achieve God's end for my life. My life has purpose and meaning. And I direct what I do and don't do according to the end that God has in mind for me. Self-controlled. And then he talks about living upright. And just as lawlessness has to do with my relationship with you, and my failure to regard or respect you? The word upright and the idea of righteousness is almost always in the Old Testament and the New used to refer to our relationships at a human level. Sometimes refers to our relationship with God, yes, but most often refers to the way we relate to each other. And what Paul is saying again is that if, if I care what God thinks, what God wants from me, it's going to change the way I manage myself. I'll live a self-controlled life. So that with my life I achieve God's end. It's going to show up in such a way that I regard and have respect for you. And I treat you in a manner that is consistent with and reflective of the nature of a holy and righteous God. That makes me think more of Johnny. When Johnny was in school, he had that regard for Dr. Kerr. That special relationship. He cared what Dr. Kerr thought. And therefore, he conducted himself differently as he lived in the dorm. And he dealt with others on campus differently because he knew the one whose grace, whose generosity had made it possible for him to be there. Brothers and sisters, the message this morning is the same for us. That if we have received God's grace, it should be the same with us. That we should respond seeing grace as an opportunity to become more fully God's by becoming less devoted to anything other than God. You know, as we respond in these ways and we see the grace of God as a chance to say no to ourselves and the world and the devil and the flesh and say yes to the Lord, we'll find that what Paul says in other places is true of us. In Ephesians 4, he spoke of the church's mission as growing up into the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. The measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. God wants us to grow up in every way into Christ. The way we think, the way we feel, the way we behave, the way we see the world. Grow up in Him in every way into Him who is the head. And we live our lives responsive in this way to grace. That will be the outcome. We'll be more devoted to God and less devoted to everything else. When we live that way, it'll be just as Titus chapter 3 says. Titus 3 says... But the goodness and the loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. And He saved us. Not because of deeds done by us in righteousness, but because of His own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, 
being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. When we live in this way, saying no to ungodliness, worldly passions, and lawlessness, saying yes to godliness and self-control and uprightness, when we live that way, we will become heirs, fully fitted to spend eternity in the presence of God whose presence we wouldn't miss for the world. I would encourage you, if you're not on this journey, if you're not following the Lord to get on this journey, and if you are a Christian and you're not responding faithfully day in, day out, taking up your cross, dying to yourself daily, burying more and more of your old man daily, and resurrecting with Christ every day to live the life of the Spirit, if that's not you, get in on the journey. Because you do not want to miss this for the world. The grace of God has appeared, training us. Would you pray with me? Father, I'm so very grateful for the chance to be with your church in Winnipeg. God, in some ways it feels a bit like heaven. With so many nationalities gathered around you this morning. United by faith and one Lord. One faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all, through all, and in all. Father, I pray that our worship, our study, has honored you this morning. And I pray that it will change us as we depart from here to go back to the world and to live in it for another week. Father, whatever happens with this search, my prayer for Winnipeg is that you would bring to Winnipeg whom you have chosen. If that's me, that's great. If it's not... And I praise you. Because more important than the candidate is that your work continue in a way that honors you and blesses the world. Thank you for our time together. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Do you all offer the invitation every Sunday? Okay. So if you're not a believer this morning, I want to encourage you. We have a wonderful father who is head over heels in love with you. He sent his son Jesus to die in your place because... Let's face it, we cannot deal with our sin debt all on our own. So Jesus came, lived a perfect life. A perfect life so that he could be a perfect sacrifice. Then of his own will, he freely went to the cross where he was killed by wicked men. But he did that for us. To show us not only what sin does to us, but what it does to God. Jesus there paid the debt for sin. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. The soul that sins, it shall die. Well, God didn't want you to die. God wants to know you and to be your father. And so Jesus died on the cross in your place. Scripture says that he was buried and that on the first day he rose from the grave according to the Scriptures. The Bible tells us that's the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus died for us. He was buried and he was raised for us as well. And if you believe that this morning then you can begin following him by doing exactly what he did. Just as Jesus died on the cross, he asks you to die to yourself and to your sin. And what that means is that if you're going along life and at some point you find that your will and God's will crosses and you're going to have a vote on which way you're going to go, God says you're dead, you can't vote. We're going to go God's way. I die to my sin and myself and that's called repentance. Just as Jesus was buried, we're buried in water. In water, in baptism. And in that water, by faith, we contact the blood of Jesus, and that blood washes away all of our sins. 
Not only are we washed from our sins, we're filled with His Spirit. And the Spirit gives us the life that sin took from us. And in the life of the Spirit, we raise from that watery grave, just as Jesus rose from His grave, and we begin living a brand new life. Just as Jesus is in the presence of God for all eternity, offering Himself to the Lord and to the Lord's service, we rise from our watery grave and we begin presenting our members to God as instruments for righteousness, Paul says. If you're ready to become a Christian this morning, there's people here that I know will be glad to assist you. For anyone else, if we can pray for you, if we can pray with you, that would be our pleasure. Would you come forward as we stand, as we sing?